Today's scripture verse is from Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, that the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this protected time to be in your presence. I pray your truth would just uh, run deep, that our ears and would hear, Father, that we would not just hear, but do. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everyone. It is good to see all of you. Um, there are a few Sundays around the year that uh, cause a lot of trepidation for a pastor and a church planter, and that is the Sunday after Christmas and any Sundays around, near, or on July 4th. So those who are here, you know what? You're going to heaven, clearly. So you're, you're, you're good to go. <laughs> so, but uh, we actually have a lot to go over today, a lot of some important stuff uh, to, to discuss. And so I say it's preaching time. So let's get to work. Open up our Bibles. If you have one with you to the book of Colossians, it's in the New Testament. If you don't own a Bible, we do have some that we give as free gifts. Just stop by the info table. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word for themselves. So if you don't own one, we have some for you out there. Just take it as a free gift uh, from us to you. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 in the verses that were just read. Uh, so as you're turning to Colossians chapter 3... Uh, just know this, back in the 1920s, we began adding lead to gasoline. And the reason that we added lead to gasoline, because we discovered that it was a great way uh, in like the most cost-effective way of increasing the octane of gasoline and also improving engine quality. So it was a good thing. It's cheap and it does a good job at in increasing the octane of, of the gas. Um, but if you go after church and you go to the gas station, the convenience store, will you be able to put leaded gas in your car? And the answer is no, like you'll only be able to put unleaded in your car. And the reason why is that over the years, we just happened to discover that lead is pretty toxic. Lead is highly toxic. It's actually a neurotoxin. It's highly toxic. So because of that, uh, because of how bad it is, the U.S. government mandated a phase down in leaded gasoline started in 1974. It took about 12 years, I think. By, you know, by the time you got to the mid-80s, definitely by the late 80s, you really couldn't find leaded gasoline anywhere. Um, not unless you really, really went out of your way. And in 1978, they actually banned, there was like a U.S. government banning of leaded paint, lead paint, if it was going to be used on a house or if it was going to be used in furniture that went in the house or went into toys, like children's toys and that kind of stuff, it's just outlawed altogether because it's so bad. So here's what we know about lead. Did a little science for you. We'll drop a little science this morning. Short-term exposure to lead results in memory loss. Some of us don't need any more memory loss than we already got. So short-term memory loss, pain, tingling in hands and feet, 
That doesn't sound pleasant. Weakness, abdominal pain, hearing loss. I don't want to add that to what's already happening with me physically. That's just the short term. Here's the long-term effects of exposure to lead. Depression. I might, I might have been exposed to this at some point in my life. Depression, mental illness. Clearly, I used to drink lead. Mental illness, insanity is actually uh, one of the results of exposure to lead. Uh, chronic nausea. How would you like, nausea is bad enough. How would you like to have it all day, every day? Like, that's just wretchedness. Heart disease, kidney failure, reduced fertility, seizures, cancer, and death. That's a good little list, right? Good little list. And, and it turns out that children are particularly vulnerable to the hazards of lead. So kids, children that are exposed to lead, they, they'll suffer from mental retardation, uh, developmental issues with uh, like just their physicality, like they won't grow as, as big as they would have otherwise, decreased intelligence, lower IQ, social issues, learning disabilities, um, behavioral problems. All that, if a kid's exposed to lead sufficiently, either from the womb or in infancy when they're a toddler, etc., all because of lead. So clearly, lead is some bad junk. It is some really, really bad stuff. And unlike other chemicals and compounds that our body actually can tolerate in small little doses or quantities, what researchers have found is that there is no minimum safe level of lead. Like any and all exposure and any amount of intake of lead is bad, regardless of how little it might be. It is a life taker. It's, it's, it's so bad. It's so toxic. It's a life taker is what lead is. It may not take our life today, but it'll definitely reduce the quantity of days to our life. And not only that, probably even worse than that, it reduces the quality of life. It diminishes the goodness that could have been. It reduces the uh, potential in an individual because of lower IQ, insanity, hearing loss, abdominal pain, all of that. It's really bad, right? So knowing just how bad lead is, Anyone feel like going this afternoon, a little game of paintball, and let's make sure that the paintballs are filled with lead paint? Because that's a good idea. Let's take a, a projectile at high velocity and shoot it at one another and hope that it actually kind of gets subcutaneously. Let's just really get the lead in or get the lead out, which is usually used differently if you're a Zeppelin fan. But here, you know, a little different. So no one in their right mind would do that, right? Or what about you parents? Oh, just a little bit of finger paint. I know it's lead paint, but the kids are having fun. Like any of us in our right mind would ever allow our kids to finger paint with lead paint. No. Like we literally, it was like unloving, and it would be crazy. It would be crazy to do so. And the reason why is because lead is destructive. It's toxic. It's poisonous. It, it causes cancer. It's a carcinogen. Right? It just takes away health. It causes insanity. Lead is a life taker. And what I want us to see in the text that we're in today, Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, is that there are attitudes, there are activities, there are practices that are spiritual life takers. Like a carcinogen, there are these activities that we might partake of throughout the day that are like a carcinogen to us spiritually, and they rob us of health. 
There are certain spiritual attitudes or practices that if we do are toxic to us and they diminish our quality of life. So just like we're supposed to ban the use of lead or, or the intake or consumption of lead around our lives, in the same way we should remove the practice of these specific things, these attitudes and these activities that are spiritually toxic to each and every one of us. So um, we're not going to ask anyone to raise hands, but I'm sure that if, if, if I ask for you to raise hands, I, I, we might be surprised that everyone would raise their hand if they were fully honest. But most of us in here, if not all, we're, we're struggling every day. And, and our issues are, for the most part, mostly spiritual concerns, to be honest with you. Um, so we're dealing with emotional issues or psychological issues. I don't, I don't feel right. Like, it, it, it feels like the earth underneath my feet is a bit loose. Like, I never feel like I really, in my life, I'm not, I never feel like I'm on firm footing. Um, I don't feel comfortable in my own skin. I always feel out of sorts. Like, something isn't right. If there is a God, he's clearly distant from me. I don't feel him close or nearby. Uh, I just feel out of sorts. Anyone? Most of the time? Some of the time, Maybe. Like, it's just, like, there's something, we know, we recognize something isn't right. Like, I, I have no joy, I have no peace, the Bible talks about it, we sing about it. I'm going to sing it on Sundays because everyone else is, but the truth is that I got no peace like a river. My river be all dried up. Like, there's, there's like a drought. And so I'm singing, and I want it to be true, but in all honesty, like, this, it's not a reality in my day-to-day life. So, if that's you, and I... I fully expect that it's most of us, quite honestly. If that's you, it may very well be that it's time for us to do some replacing. You know, physical health, if you want to be healthy, it's not just a removing of unhealthy stuff. You got to remove it and replace it with good stuff. So good diet, exercise, medicine, all that. Good stuff. You got to replace the bad with the good. It's the same, it's the same way spiritually. So what Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, and really the whole chapter, uh, what it calls us to is to remove what is spiritually toxic from our lives and replace it with what is spiritually healthy and what is spiritually good. What this text really calls us to do is to replace that which is life-taking with that which is life-giving. And so this is a question that we should be asking to ourselves every day. Is this attitude, activity, practice, is it life-taking or is it life-giving? It's this thing that I do every Monday or every Wednesday night or every Saturday morning or this thing that I do at work. Is it life-giving or is it life-taking? We need to take inventory and say, okay, these things are life-taking and begin to remove them and replace them with what is actually life-giving. So let's work our way through the text here. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So what is earthly refers to those attitudes, those activities, and those practices that are sinful. Sin. That's like a four-letter word by today's standards, even though it's only three. But most people consider it a four-letter word. Four-letter word. Uh, sin is life-taking. So let me just give you some evidence as to how I know that it's life-taking. Let's go back, all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis. Chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, God tells Adam, hey, I got a bunch of trees, and they all produce really good fruit. 
like you got mangoes and you got bananas and not pineapples because they don't grow on trees. That will do the trick question to Adam back in the day. But they get all kinds of wonderful fruit. He said, you can eat of all this fruit, just not that one tree. There's one tree, just one tree out of the thousands or however many there were that you could not eat of. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he warned them. He's like, and if you do eat of that fruit, of that one tree that I'm asking you not to eat of, if you disobey me, if you sin, you will surely die. Like, sure enough, die. Clearly, indeed, without question, you will die. Sin is a life taker. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, very famously says, For the wages of sin is death. So, from the beginning, Old Testament and now in the New Testament, God tells us very upfront, very, very uh, clearly that sin kills. Sin destroys, and that's why we're told in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put it to death. What God is actually instructing us to do is kill that which kills. Remove that from your life which is seeking to take your life. Put it to death. Get rid of it. Kill sin is what we're called to. If we're a follower of Christ, kill sin. Sin... Uh, and I think we have to actually discuss this. Um, we live in a world where most people don't know what sin is and where most people don't even believe in the concept of sin. If you go out to someone who did not grow up in church or hasn't been in much Bible study and you tell them uh, that such and such is sin or that they're a sinner, they may look at you weird. At the very least, they might actually slap you around. Like, they're not going to like it at all. So I think for our sake, let's just understand what sin is. And I'll try to make this as simply as I know how. Sin is moral failure as measured by the standard of God's holiness. That's what sin is. Sin is moral failure as measured by the standard of God's holy character. Therefore, sin is any thought, word, deed, action, attitude, desire, motivation that contradicts who God is in any way. Anything you think or say or do in any way or that you don't think or you don't say or you don't do that God thinks, says, and does is sin. So we got to understand who God is. So real quick, in case you don't know, just a little reminder, who is God? God is good. God is so good and we say that so much that you got to throw a little extra something, something on the end of it, right? So if you grew up in certain circles, if I say God is good, you're supposed to say all the time. And if I say all the time, you're supposed to say God is good, right? We could do it in English. We could do it in Espanol. Dios es bueno. Todo el tiempo. Todo el tiempo. Dios es bueno. Like God is good always and only all the time. For those who are from Haiti and who speak Creole, bon je bon. Antutan, Antutan, bon je bon. Come on now. We're going all, we're bringing all the nations together this morning. Let's try it in German. Luftwaffe. Not quite, not quite. I think that's the only German word I know. God is good. God is good always and only. And he is generous and he is giving. He is benevolent and he is charitable. Everything that you have is only because God is good and he's so giving with what it is that belongs to him, okay? 
and he's loving. God is love, and he's merciful, and he's kind. Isn't that a good thing? He's gracious and slow to anger and patient. Man, like I lose, I lose my patience with my kids, and they don't really do all that much. How much patience does God must have with me where I know better? And I still do it. He's loving, merciful, patient, kind, slow to anger in every way. Uh, he always tells the truth. You know this, that God never lies? He can't lie. He always tells He is truth. He is the source, the wellspring of all wisdom and knowledge of everything that is right. He's pure. He's perfect. He's without darkness. He's without blemish, sinless. There's no darkness. He cannot abide in sin. He cannot abide in it. He is holy and righteous fully all the time. That is who our great and our wonderful God is. And any attitude, any activity, any practice that contradicts any of that is sin. Pretty high standard. Pretty high standard. And we live in this world, this modern world, where the predominant uh, thought is moral relativism. Anything goes, everything goes. Like most people don't believe in moral absolutes. Like as a follower of Jesus, I believe in moral absolutes. Like God is God, his word is his word, his character is his character. I believe that that's ultimate and absolute in every way. Uh, But most of the world doesn't believe that. They don't believe in moral absolutes at all. Uh, They don't believe in the concept of sin because sin requires a belief in those moral ultimate absolutes. Like, so don't believe in sin. They don't believe that there's a standard that I am to live by and that I will be judged by. That's the world that we, in fact, do live in. And what, but what is ironic, the world will tell you this. So a non-Christian say, I don't really believe in God. I don't believe in moral absolutes. I don't believe in sin. That's what they'll say. Here's what's ironic in a real contradiction. They really do believe it. Deep down inside, instinctively, they may not call it sin. They may get offended when we use the word sin, but they still actually believe in it. Does anyone in the world think that lying is good? Maybe if they're getting some benefit out of it, but if they're being lied to, is it okay? No. Like, the world understands that lying is wrong. Like, uh, the world will tell their kids, you know, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we're first we practice to deceive. You know, that's not necessarily a Christian thing. The world owns that statement, right? Or, or go to a, a therapist, a, a psychologist, psychiatrist, or someone, and, and they'll tell you that resentment toward a person and holding grudges toward a person is personally damaging to you. Not, I mean, regardless of what effect it has on the person you're resentful for, they'll tell you stop being resentful because you're hurting yourself more than you're hurting the person that you're holding the grudge against. Like, the world will tell you that. It's my, even the world will tell you that greed isn't healthy. Now, regardless of what the movie Wall Street says, you know, for lack of a better word, greed is good. I mean, the, the, we mock those kinds of things because it's not true. And the world even knows that greed is not a good thing. So, even though everyone else does not call it sin, everyone instinctively knows that there are certain attitudes and activities and practices that are damaging and corroding and not helpful. You follow? And the reason everyone on the planet, on every continent, in every nation, regardless of the language that they speak, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of any of that, the reason we all instinctively know deep down that this is the case is because we're all made in the image of God. 
God has knitted all of us in our mother's womb and created us in the image in his likeness. If we're created in his image, and I want everyone to know this because a lot of people don't, what does it mean that we're made in God's image? Because Genesis 1 doesn't really unpack that. I'll tell you what it means. We're made to reflect the glory and the character of God. That's, that's what it means that we're created in the image of God. We were specifically made, uh, unlike anything else, in the entire cosmos to reflect the glory and the character of God, unlike anything else in all of existence can. That is our role in this world. So when we sin, we go against our human programming. If we're designed that way, programmed that way, when we sin, it violates the very thing for which we were created. It, it basically is trying to operate Windows on a Mac. You can't do it. It doesn't work. The system crashes. It's the same thing. When we sin, the system crashes. Everything, like our emotions, our, our head, our mind, our soul, everything gets into conflict. Everything gets opposed to, to each other. So, Everyone knows this. They may not call it sin. They may not admit it. They might not want to think of a God judging them, but everyone knows that sin is unfruitful, regardless of what we call it. Everyone knows this. It's not helpful, and that is the case for all people, and especially acutely for those who are actually followers of Jesus. So last week in the text that we looked at, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we're told that a follower of Jesus is a person who has died with Christ, who has been raised with Christ, and whose life is hidden with Christ. They're new. The old has passed. They are a new creature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It, it says that very specifically. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are a new creation. So there is a sinful lifestyle that belongs to the old, that belongs to the old before we knew Christ. There are certain attitudes and there are certain activities and there are certain practices that belong to a lifestyle that was true of us prior to knowing Jesus. Worldly ways characterized our ways prior to accepting and tasting of the grace of the goodness of God's glory personally. And so now, if we are in Christ, if our profession is in who he is, he's the son of God, he died on a cross, he was raised from the dead, we give our lives to him, we are brand spanking new. We're the floor model. We're not the ones out in the yard getting rained on, folks. We're the souped up, turbocharged model. We're the floor model. We're new in Christ, all of us. And that's why, because that is our new identity. That's why Colossians 3.5 says, put it to death. Put the old to death. Put the fleshly stuff to death. Put the sin to death. Kill it. If you're in Christ, be done with it. Live, own this new identity. Your new creature, live like it. Act like it. Enjoy it. Relish in it. As a new creature, don't Go back. Don't devolve spiritually into something that you were once before. So while we are, and this is the tricky part, while we are new creations in Christ, praise God, while that is true, if our faith is in Jesus, unfortunately, in this world, the old nature still persists. That old sinful nature still is around 
messing with us. Um, one day, you know, when that Trump sounds and the heavens will get cracked open and like a scroll and all that kind of stuff we just sang about, there's a day that's coming where that old fleshly nature will be fully eradicated and removed. How wonderful will that be? But between now and then, it torments us. It pester us. It is constantly, chronically plaguing us, trying to incite us to stop sinning. Or I'm sorry, to keep sinning, not to stop, but to actually keep sinning. It torments us with very real temptation to keep sinning. It's always whispering, hey, you remember what you used to do? You remember how good that was? Let's go, let's go do that again. That's, I mean, it'll be fun. It won't hurt you that much. So it's always, always active and alive. It's like dry powder keg, like really fine, really dry powder keg. It doesn't take much to get it going, right? It is looking for the smallest of sparks to ignite and to explode all up in your face. It's what, that's what the old sin nature is. So it's active, always active, looking for opportunities to give into sin, to give into temptation, uh, to do that which is life-taking rather than to do that which is life-giving. So that's why we're told, again, in verse 5, put sin to death. Because this old nature still around, right? So you got to put it to death. Now, notice this. It says, put it to death. It does not say, manage it. Uh-oh. Everybody's toes need to kind of get, like, scooted up underneath the chair real quick. Um, because I think that most of us have the tendency of trying to manage our sin rather than to execute it. We try to manage it. And managing sin is allowing just a little bit of sin, you know, just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. I don't know why I said it that way. Just a, just a little bit of sin in our life. Just keep it in check. Just enough to enjoy a little, but not so much that it actually causes too many problems. You follow? This is how a lot of us are. Basically, trying to manage sin is like trying to manage a volcano, you can't manage hot liquid magma. Try. You can't do it. It's not possible. Like trying to manage sin, it's like trying to microwave a hot pocket and not burning your mouth afterwards. Like it is impossible. I don't know what it is about what's in a hot pocket. It can't, can't do it. You will annihilate and destroy your mouth every time. So if our confession is in Christ, if that is a true confession, that we are followers of Jesus, we have to take Colossians 3, 5 to heart and take it serious. But we want to manage it. Basically, we want to keep our sins around like old pets. I just want to cuddle with it every once in a while. I just want to play with it, take it hunting on occasion. That's what we want to do. But we, what we forget to recognize, what we forget is that that is not a cute pet or a helpful pet. It's a venomous viper that's just trying to strike its poison into you. So there's no justification a lot. If for no other reason than simple perseverance, like just for our own health, we should not want to manage sin, but we should want to annihilate that which is trying to destroy our life. But let's say that even you could. Let's say you could manage your sin. You can't because it's like trying to manage a volcano. But let's say that you could. What does it say about those of us who actually profess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior if we 
want to keep it around just a little bit. If we want to keep that which Jesus gave his life for. What does it say about what we truly believe in that case? What, what does it say that we actually enjoy, like, and love these things that Scripture tells us that God hates? And that he hates so much that he's willing to die for it. So even if you could manage it, why would you? Even if it's a matter of health, but it's a matter of honor and glory to, to God Almighty. So that, that leads us to this question. So now we know what sin is. Um, and that we have this nature that's always wanting it more, just to live in it and swim in it. Um, how do we kill it? So it says, put it to death, which is, okay, thank you, Apostle Paul, for writing that. It would have been nice for you to give us a systematic 10-step plan for how this works, because I've been trying at this for like 30 years, and I really doesn't feel like I'm getting much of anywhere. So here's a little thoughts. Take it for what it's worth as far as how we go about killing sin. First, you got to be first. To kill sin, you got to be first. So let me explain what I mean by that. So those of you who are like grew up playing sports, or maybe you play sports now, uh, in sports like basketball or soccer, it's all about being first. I don't mean winning. I mean on the field, play by play. It's all about being first. So you'll hear the coach on, like, on the sideline or the, yeah, uh, the sideline yelling at the players, be first, be first, be first. Meaning, be first to the ball. If the ball is loose, be first to the ball. Beat the other player to the ball. Or in basketball, you have to beat the person to a place on the court. You got you to gotta be first in that position, attain position first. So the, the team, the players that hustle, who impose their will and establish dominance, those are the teams that win. Those are the players and the teams that are successful. Those who establish position, possession, and impose their will. Well, it's the same way spiritually. It's the same way. You got to be first every day. You got to wake up every day, all day long. It's like, all right, uh, temptation's coming, and I'm here I'm going to be first to the spot. So I'm going to make up my mind now that I'm not going to watch that. I'm not going to look at that. When that person acts this way to me, I'm not going to respond in kind. Like you got to beat the temptation to the spot and be ready. You got to beat them and take actually possession of it. Like so in sports, you have to take possession of the ball. In life, you got to take possession of your life. Because if you don't, sin will. So you got to be first to take position and position in your life. And you got you to impose your will. Man, like, you got to flex a little bit. It's not a passive thing. You actually have to fight. We're told in Scripture that this life is a fight. You do have to flex. You do have to labor and strive and make an effort to, to combat sin. It's just because just it's hard doesn't mean it's okay. So you got to flex a little bit. And if you don't, if you don't hustle spiritually, if you don't take possession of these moments, if you don't establish yourself, if you don't impose your will, guess what will? The old nature. And you'll sin and poison will start coming into your life moment by moment, and it'll start eradicating and eroding that good life with all of its potential and completion in Christ that you so desire and the, the life that God has given to you. So, so to kill sin, you got to be first. To kill sin, you got to ask for God's help. All right, so 
This cannot happen outside of God's empowerment upon our lives. We need the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Scripture actually tells us that the Holy Spirit will actually help us to kill sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you do it. So you can't do it on your own. I just, there's some things that are just simple. And then one day you, you think of it in a certain way. It just kind of makes sense. So, you know, I'm, I'm on this whole campaign personally, trying to get everyone in our church to pray more or pray. And uh, more often, just more, more fervently. And uh, it, it occurred to me recently that prayer is a spiritual activity that I cannot do unless I'm doing it in the spirit. So like even Ephesians tells us that, right? Pray in the spirit. So I can't just muster up my own abilities or conjure up my own will in doing it. I need for God to be at work in me in order to pray. Well, if it's true that I need God just to pray, how much more do I need God to get rid of the old nature and to kill sin? Like it's, it's a spiritual activity. It cannot happen outside of the empowering hand and the strength and the might of God in, in our lives. Any and all positive spiritual movement in our lives takes place only if God is actively involved in our heart, in our soul, doing what only he can do. So he's the one that gives conviction. He gives conviction of what is wrong, right or wrong. He's the one that gives us a strength and even an out in moments of temptation. Uh, I heard uh, Matt Chandler, he's a pastor at the Village Church down in Texas, and he said this. He's like, not all things are a matter of information. Some things are a matter of power. How simple and how true. Don't say that information's wrong. It's just saying that not all things are a matter of information. Some things are actually a matter of power. So ridding our lives of the life-taking things requires God's life-giving power in our hearts, active, doing its thing. Psalm, Psalm 25, verses 4 through 5 says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Make me. Make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Folks, that's not a request for information. That's a request for power. That's a request for God to be alive. Make me, lead me, teach me, change me, conform me to your, to your image. The only way that we'll live that new, better, blessed, abundant life that God so freely offers is with his help. So we need to pray ask for it. Jesus told us to pray in such a way. Lord, Father, lead me not into temptation, but what? Deliver me from evil. And guess what? I don't think he necessarily meant the evil of the evil one devil, which I think might be included. I don't think he necessarily meant uh, uh, deliver me from the evil of my neighbor, which might be included there. I actually think he meant deliver me from the own, my own evil that I caused to myself. Deliver me from the very evil that I will do to myself if you do not interact on my behalf. That's what Jesus is telling us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Pray and ask for God's help because there's no way to kill sin. So it's not passive. You got to be active. You got to be first every day. But in that being first, 
God, you got to be here, or me being first won't matter any bit at all. So help me, support me. So uh, we got to just cover some of these sins we got to kill, right? Why not? We got a few minutes to kill here. So let's uh, discuss these sins, these earthly things we're to put to death. And uh, I'm sure that once we cover this list afterwards, these will be no issue to any of us. So uh, just know that the, verse, the, the verses in our text, they do give us a list of sins that we're to put to death, but it's not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list. It's a sampling. But the first one that's mentioned is in verse 5, sexual immorality, otherwise known as fornication. So basically, any and all sexual contact of any kind to any level in any degree with anyone outside of the covenant between one husband and one wife is sexual immorality. And notice that I did not say between one man and one woman because it has to be under the covenant of marriage, one husband and one wife, okay? So anything, any touching, any of any kind, that is of that nature is sexual immorality. He said, put it to death. Okay? Now, maybe that would be kind of easy if it was just limited to physical acts, but it's not. It actually includes lusting. So that's where you get those next few words in verse 5. So it lists impurity passion, and evil desire. So those words taken together in context are all sins of lusting. They are sexual fantasizing. It's really what, what it amounts to. So, so it's not just whether or not I actually do the action. It's actually me wanting to or thinking about it or just pondering and wondering in my mind, letting my old nature imagination run wild. Those are the sins of lust. So Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So just even thinking about it is equivalent in the eyes of God to actually doing it. We're running around with a bunch of sexually moral people. It's really what Jesus is telling us. We're all sexually moral. And it's telling us that we need to put this sin to death. And, and, and I'm just, this is my hypothesis as to why this, these are mentioned first. Because these are a counterfeit for love. These, these emotions and these desires and these cravings for these appetites, lust is a distortion of love. It's almost the opposite of love. Where love is selfless, Lust is selfish. Where love gives, lust takes. Love is life-giving. Lust is life-taking. And so it, it just shows right there how awful, how awful these sins are. I, I don't believe that there is a person that could honestly, truthfully, accurately say, you know what? I am actually better off for having slept around all my life. I mean, people don't brag. Don't get me wrong, right? Especially dudes, certain circles, man. They don't, man how many notches on the bedpost? How many notches on the belt? Like, I'm, but they can say it, but they can't honestly, truthfully mean it. Like, not really. 
Like, there's not a person walking around the world that's like, you know what? I'm actually better for those thousand hours I spent watching pornography. No, no one would say that. Not even an addict of pornography says, yeah, I'm actually better. This improved me. This made me a better person. There's not a person who says, you know what? I'm truly a better person for having cheated on my spouse. No one would, could say that. No one would, Right? It's just not possible to say, and the reason why is that these, these sins, uh, these sexual uh, sins, of whether they're attitude or whether they're practice, they're actually extremely dehumanizing. So we're made to reflect the glory of God. But these sins, they, they reduce us down to our most base level. They basically make us animals. So there's nothing sophisticated or evolved or enlightened about the sexual revolution where now we're free to do everything. We're actually, that's sending everything backwards. That's devolving us if we, if we give in to those temptations and those cravings. So um, I do think, I want to say this just for the record. Um, sex is not wrong. Sex is not bad. God created it. It's a gift. It's a good thing. All right. The sexual desire is not right. It's not wrong. <laughs> is right. It's not wrong. Sexual desire is not so long as it's satisfied in accordance with the design that God set forth. And if it's used that way, folks, it is life giving. And if it's misused, it is life taking. It dehumanizes us. Verse five also mentions the sin of covetousness. Covetous- covetousness. <laughs> Covetousness is the opposite of contentment. The opposite of contentment. When someone covets, they're saying, uh, I want more. I don't have enough. I want what you got. I'm not content. Basically, it's greed. It's a synonym of greed. We, we know from 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. In other words, covetousness is life-taking. It plunges you into destruction. It is life-taking. And here in this verse, what's interesting is that it equated with idolatry. To covet is to be idolatrous. And uh, to idolatry is simply loving something more than God, putting something ahead of God. Um, it's basically the first commandment that was given. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, if we desire or want anything more than we want God, we are guilty of breaking the first commandment. We are idolaters, and therefore we are covetous people. Covetous in every way. So verse 4, in, uh, yeah, verse 4 tells us that Christ is our life. Colossians 3, 4. Our life is hidden in Christ. He's our life. Well, if he's our life, to desire anything other than where our life is, is idolatry. It's idolatry. So we, when we covet, we're taking away from him who is the source of our life. All right, verse 8. Here's a few more sins to add to our list. Time to stop with all, these will be easy because none of you wrestle with these. Uh, stop with all the anger, the wrath, and the malice. Because none of you get angry, right? None of you. All right, so these three refer to an attitude of hostility that we might have toward another person. It is wishing ill on another person. 
When you're angry at somebody, when you're wrathful, when you're malice, you're wishing ill upon a person. So to go back to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus said, if you're angry towards someone, it's equivalent to murdering them. Just like lusting is equivalent to adultery, Jesus said, if you're angry at someone, it's equivalent to murder. I am in a room full of mass murderers. Am I not? Because that means how much anger have we had at how many people in our lives? Folks, we are mass murderers up in here. We in clear need of some help. It's a, it's a posture when you're angry at someone, right? And you kind of shun them a little bit. You might not talk to them. Like you may not actually hit them, but that resentment you have, you're acting as judge, as jury, and as ex- executioner. Really, if you could, you would banish them and condemn them from all existence. That's what anger and malice and, and wrath all are. Well, as followers of Jesus, we're to be merciful, and gracious, and forgiving, and loving. Those attitudes are life-giving. The other three, not so much. They are life-taking. And then to finish the list here, verse 8 adds slander, and it adds obscene talk to the list. And verse 9 adds lying. So these three clearly concern our speech. So we've talked about like desires, we've talked about actions, we've talked about attitudes and postures here. This talks about speech. Slander is uttering false charges against another person. If you accuse someone of doing something that they did not do, that's called slander. Okay? It also includes gossip, by the way. Gossip is slander. But I didn't mean for it to be bad. Well, it doesn't matter what you meant. Like, you know, everybody says, oh, it's the, it's the intentions that matter. Nah, it's the results that matters. Like if you do something, whether or not you meant for it to do good or bad, if it caused bad, it's bad, period. So gossip is included there. Basically, any speech that defames another person, whether to their face or behind their back, whether it is verbally communicated or typed or put on Facebook, anything that defames the character of another person is called slander. Put it to death. And then in there it says obscene talk, refers to foul language, shameful speech, dirty jokes, and in the South, cussing. I I will say this real quick. I wasn't going to say it, but I'll say it. My dad's here. I wouldn't say it if my mom was. Um, By the time I got to my early 20s, you guys didn't know me. Um, I had the, uh, the foulest mouth. It was awfulness. I, I've got some videos at home of when I was in college that we took, and I've, I, it's been years since I, and I remember watching, I'm like, oh my word. Like, it is the worst, worst pirate Viking talk <laughs> ever. And I realized by, by the time I was like 23, 24, um, back in the day, Howard Stern played early here in the radio, and I'd listen to Howard Stern every day. And it occurred to me, it's like, huh. I don't, think, I don't think that this is healthy to listen to. And I turned it off. I stopped cussing instantly. So there's something to be said about what comes out of our mouth based upon what's going in. Anyway, that was for free. Um, the last one mentioned here is lying, which refers to not telling the truth. We don't really have to unpack that one, right? Like telling something false uh, in, in order to deceive another person or to mislead them, it's lying. Well, our mouths were made to speak truth. Our mouths were made to build people up, not to tear them down. Our mouths were made to honor God. So any speech that does not do those three things is sin, and it needs to be put to death. 
They're destructive, corrosive. They're life-taking, not life-giving. So just like lead is a poisonous neurotoxin that, that we need to remove from our bodies, it doesn't belong in our bodies, these sins are poison, spiritual poison, a toxin that does not belong in us and does not belong in the world. And sin is so toxic and in such contradiction to the world that God has created, that God is actually on the move, he's on the march, he's about to eradicate all of the sin from all of existence. And that's what verse 6 tells us. On account of these, on account of all of these sins we just talked about, the wrath of God is what? It's coming. It's coming. So God created this world. It belongs to him. All of this, all of us, we belong to him. We were made for his glory and for his fame. And all of our sin and all of our immorality takes away from that. You know, a lot of times you hear of Genesis chapter 3 referred to as the great tragedy. And people will say, oh, how tragic it was when, when Adam and Eve sinned. And, and because of that, now like laboring for a day's wages is so difficult. And childbirth is so painful. And because of that, death came into the world, the great tragedy. Folks, that's not the great tragedy of Genesis 3. The great tragedy of Genesis 3 is not those things that happen to us. It's that God is not getting the glory that he deserves. Because he created all of this for himself, for his good pleasure. And it's because God is holy that he cannot abide in sin and he cannot let it abide. It's because his character is righteous fully in every way that he demands justice. Justice is demanded on account of every sin ever committed by everyone. It has to be judged. It has to be completely punished. And like cancer, it has to be excised from the universe. And just like the government has taken lead out of gas, God is taking the sin out of the world. And there's two ways, folks. And there's only two ways by which this takes place. Wrath or grace. I take grace. You know that God says that he desires that no one would perish and that everyone would come to salvation? God's heart for everyone is grace. He loves us. So that's why we always sing about Jesus and talk about Jesus. He came, God, he came, goes to a cross. And you know what he did on that cross? He says, hey, I'll take your sexual morality and I'll take your lying and I'll take your wrath, and I'll take your malice, and I'll take your slander, and I'll take your covetousness, and I'll take your idolatry. I'll take, um, I'll, what are some of the other? I'll take your lust. I'll take your lying. I'll take it all off of you, and I'm going to hold it right here, and I'm going to do business with it. And wrath was poured on Jesus on the cross so that you would be spared, so that you would receive grace. Folks, that is a way better, way better way of experiencing the removal of sin. And if, and if we don't give ourselves over to Christ and believe in him and follow him, there's only one other option. There's only one other outcome, and that is holy, righteous wrath of Almighty God. It's going to be one or the other. And so we have to make a decision. Which do you choose? Do you choose grace or do you choose wrath? And I pray and I hope and I beg that everyone in here has chosen grace. And say, well, I just haven't made a decision that I'm putting it off. No decision is, in fact, a decision. And unfortunately, it's, it's not a decision for grace. It's a decision for wrath. Today is the day of salvation. We don't know what's going to happen a minute from now 
or an hour from now or tomorrow. We don't know when we'll breathe our last breath. And God could not have made it any easier for us. Just believe in Jesus and all that judgment is taken off of you. You are free and clear of all your sin. You are pardoned forever. And if you've chosen grace, there's only one way to live. There's only one way to live. Put to death the old stuff. Kill it. Put it to death. It's really a matter of integrity. Something that we don't really talk about too much these days. Our need to be men and women, followers of Jesus, with actual integrity in our lives. First Kings chapter 18, verse 21, the prophet Elijah looked at the people. He looked them in the eye and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord, if Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal, this other God, this false God, if he's God, follow him. Like the whole point is like, choose already. Now, there's really only one right good option here, but at least choose. Like, if you can't live with one foot in one camp and a foot in another camp. Like, either Jesus is our Lord or he isn't. Either we're all in or we're not. You cannot live with feet in multiple worlds. So as a follower of Jesus, it's true. We do stumble. Every day we do fall. We will sin. We are far, far from perfect. But man, if Jesus is Lord, that's our heart's desire. Like, he loves me. I'm going to love him back. Our, my heart's desire is to bless him who has blessed me. So now I strive to the best of my ability every day with intentionality and with integrity. I will actually live as Jesus Christ, as Lord of my life. And it's a decision and it's a commitment. So it really comes down to, to this integrity because you cannot serve two masters. We cannot justify sin. It's just, it's okay. It's just a little bit. It's just one time. Because again, what does it say about what we believe about Jesus if we're just allowing a little bit in our lives as if that's okay? But some of us do hold on to sin, right? And why? Because we like it. Dare I say that we love it. We like the way it makes us feel, the way it looks, the way it tastes, the way it smells. We like it. But integrity calls us to wake up, to wake up to the reality that this is not something that is lovable, but in fact is deadly poison. Um, I don't know if you know this, but it is actually theorized that one of the reasons the Roman Empire fell is because of lead poisoning. They built these uh, aqueducts that were lined in lead. And so the entire city was drinking water straight basically from lead containers. The higher-ups, like the Caesars and those who actually ran the, the empire from Rome, the, the people that were wealthy, they ate and drank food and drink that was prepared in lead pots. So if you go back in history and you read the Caligula and Nero and these like emperors, you actually find out that they were all extremely disturbed. They were insane. Go read the history. And they had gout, and they had all kinds of physical problems. And when they read the list of the ailments, and you compare it to what we know exposure to lead does, they're like, holy cow, they were all lead poisoned. And it actually helped to crumble an entire empire. Well, if sin can do that to an empire, I mean, sorry, if lead can do that to an empire, what do you think sin does to us? It crumbles us. It damages us. It crushes it crushes us. So what we have to understand or what we have to decide is, do I love this kind of little sin that is so much fun? Do I love it or do I love Jesus? 
Do I love this thing that wants to take my life? Or do I love him who gives me life? God loves you. I want you to know this. Despite talking about sin and what it is and its ugliness, not my favorite thing to talk about on a Sunday. But I want you to know that God does, in fact, truly, deeply, profoundly love you. And he truly desires blessing for your life, a life full, full, chock full of blessings. And we do have a role toward that goal. And that role is give your life to Jesus, trust in him, renounce the former ways, those activities, act, attitudes, and practices that are sinful. Just renounce them, turn, repent from those. Give your life to Christ. Pray for God's strength and live the new life and don't give yourself to the temptations of the old. Whatever you do, replace what is life-taking with what is life-giving. All right, let's pray. Um, Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you for your truth. And I pray, Lord, that this would not just be information, but that you would take these words and that you would apply your power into our hearts, our minds, our conscience. And Lord, that we would see sin for what it is. Lord, it is a deadly adversary. It is a toxin. It is poisonous. It destroys. It harms, Lord. It, it offends you. It doesn't help us. It doesn't bless us or anyone else, Lord. So I pray that we would take this serious, but know that um, whatever delights we may find or think that we have in these things, Lord, they're not real. They're a mirage. They're fool's gold. And they clearly do not compare to the riches of your grace and your blessings and your hand upon our lives. And so, Lord, I do ask that if there's anyone here who is someone who has not given their life to you, not trusted in the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would knock upon the door of their heart and that they would open up and they would let you in. Or if that is you, someone here this morning, just reach out to him. Like, God, I'm, I'm still in the old, I'm trying to manage my sin. It doesn't work. I, I believe in your son. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sin. And I'll give myself to you. And for all others, Lord, I pray that we would take this text serious, that we would put these things to death. Lord, that we may honor you and that we may live fully the life that you have called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.